Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Oliver Sodden, who is the author of a truly remarkable new book titled Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. As frequent listeners to this podcast may remember, as a teenager growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, I developed a very unlikely affinity for all things related to Noel Coward, inspired, I'm sure, by that double-record cast recording of the 1972 musical review, Oh Coward. which I still enjoy playing. And from then on, I was hooked. This is the first biography of Coward in nearly 30 years, and it's a spectacular achievement, incredibly thorough and brilliantly researched, and perhaps most remarkably, as the title would indicate, Oliver Sodden is able to encompass all of the many lives of Noel Coward, including his multiple careers as actor, singer, dancer, playwright, lyricist, composer, director, media star, screenwriter, film director, and nightclub entertainer, as well as his hair-raising espionage career during World War II, and his personal life and romance 
romantic gay relationships, which because of Oliver's exclusive and unrestricted access to Coward's unpublished diaries and correspondence, he is now able to reveal in this book in more detail than ever before. I was also especially happy that this book gives equal weight to Coward's musicals, reviews, and songs as it does to his brilliant plays. Oliver Sodden is a writer and broadcaster whose previous books include the critically acclaimed 2019 biography of composer Michael Tippett, and his writings on art, music, and literature have appeared in The Guardian, The Spectator, London Review of Books, and The Times Literary Supplement, and he's also a frequent guest speaker on BBC radio and television broadcasts. Noel Coward is without a doubt one of the most remarkable figures of the 20th century, and as you will hear, Oliver and I had a great time talking about him, and it will be my pleasure to share that conversation with you over the next several episodes. Here we go. Welcome, Oliver Sodden. It's so wonderful to have you today on Broadway Nation to talk about your new book, Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. Pleasure to be here. This is the first biography of Noel Coward in 30 years. So what made this the right time to revisit Noel Coward? Well, that was sort of the reason why it was the right time, in as far as there is ever a wrong time. Because I was about five years old when the last biography of Noel Coward, a really fine book by the author Philip Hoare, was published. Which, of course, means that Coward hasn't been looked at again for my generation, born at the end of the last century or at the beginning of this one. Although it took me a bit of time to sort of realise this, he does have a relevance to this new generation of young young theatre-goers and young people in general. And it seemed to me that was the chief reason that a figure of Coward's stature and Coward's prolificness really did earn being looked at again by each generation, each one of which can then see what it is he has to say about us. It wasn't just what new could I say about him. It was what new did he have to say about us a hundred years on from all his great premieres in the 20s and so on. Let's talk about that relevance to your generation. Some people might find it odd that young people today would be interested in work from 100 years ago. Yeah, that's true. And it's also true that, you know, most of the faces in audiences of book events that I do are over 40, to say the least of it. And to be kind. Yeah, to be kind. <laughs> and younger people aren't so aware of Coward's work. But I think what is interesting is that mine is really the first generation who can be so open about Coward on so many levels. You know, it's amazing to think back 30 years to the last biography of Noel Coward, published in 1995, where in the UK, at least, there was this thing called Section 28 that barred the so-called promotion of homosexuality in schools, where there was no such thing as gay marriage, where the age of consent was not equal to the heterosexual age of consent. All these things, and you can see previous biographers sort of tiptoeing around the very core of Coward's life, which is his sexuality and his emotional life and so on. But it's more than that. I think when I began to look at Coward's plays in depth, I began to see that his real relevance comes about a young generation in the 1920s, after the catastrophe of the First World War, but also after the catastrophe of a global pandemic of the Spanish flu, which Coward caught and became very ill with, being spat out 
into this new generation and trying to upend all the previous generation's moral convictions about sex and love and how to live and so on. And if that isn't relevant to a young generation in the 2020s, coming out of a global pandemic, looking into the future as Coward did and thinking that it really looks quite bleak when you look at Ukraine and the climate and so on, and throwing out everything the previous generation thought about gender, about sex, about how to live. The parallels there are there for the taking. And that's where I think Coward's relevance for my generation really comes in. He's very pertinent in these decades of societal convulsion and recalibration against a backdrop of fear, the 1920s, the 1960s, and arguably the 2020s. I think you make a great case for that in this book. Why were you particularly drawn to write this book and how did it come about that you have taken on this mammoth challenge? Well, I have to say, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't my fault. I'd written a biography of a British composer, classical composer called Michael Tippett, which had sort of set the groundwork for a big 20th century life. And I was casting about for another project and it was suggested to me via a combination of my publishers in England and the Noel Card Estate, which is run by a theatrical agency in London, that it was about time somebody new looked at Coward. And I did say yes straight away because he is irresistible and there was a new archive that was being released with new archival material. And as I say, it had been so long since the last one. But I did then falter and wonder whether I'd made the right decision because I had seen some of the great famous comic plays. I'd seen Private Lives in my childhood. I'd seen Blythe Spirit. I'd seen Hay Fever. But that was about the extent of my knowledge beyond some of the most famous songs, which I think are in people's bone marrow without their knowing it. And I had a waiver and a hesitation. And I thought, hold on, is he really as relevant as all that? And is he not just a rather passe conservative figure? And it wasn't until COVID when all the archives closed and I lay on a sofa not being able to do much in the way of research and only had his plays. That's all I had for months. That was very good for me because it meant I just had to go back to what he said, not what we think he said, not the famous lines, not the fake idea of who he pretended to be, but who he really was and actually was and what he actually said. And that was very useful. After that, I just flew. But it was a shaky start. And you had access eventually to some archives that no one else has previously had access to. Yes, Coward's papers have quite literally been scattered around the world because when he died, he had a house in Switzerland, he had a house in Jamaica, he had an American office, he had a London office, he had a surviving partner, Graham Payne, who lived on for many, many years. And it has taken that long for everything to be consolidated into one major archive in England with an offshoot at Yale and an offshoot in New York at the Public Library. I was really the first one to make use of this large archive. And of course, the other thing is that things like the Official Secrets Act, which closed a lot of Coward's wartime documents at the National Archives in the United Kingdom and indeed in Washington, all of that has gone away. I had access to that. And there were also some wartime diaries that had never been opened before. And it's long enough that the estate had decided they could be opened. So there was a lot of new material that was very exciting. I think one of the most remarkable things about this book is that you are able to wrap your hands or your brain or whatever you want to call it around his, not only his massive output, 50 plays, nine musicals, 675 songs, as you tell us, 
Yeah. And then everything that he wrote about his life and everything that everyone else has written about his life, all the correspondence. Can you just give us a little sense of how, as a biographer, you're able to approach all of that? With great ill grace, really, and impatience, because as you say, it sometimes seemed that he could write more in a day than I could read in a day. And there's no answer to it, really. There's no secret. It was just reading and reading and reading and sitting on long, smelly tube journeys to the archive and back again and just looking at everything and trying. I have to be honest, of course, you cut corners because you can spend three days on the great lasting plays and you don't need to do that on some of the lesser known works of the 50s and 60s, which are not as good, um, especially in the 1950s and which are not done now. So you sort of read those very quickly. I mean, the book from beginning to end, from first idea to holding the finished copy in my hand was five years, which actually now I look back seems quite quick because there was so much, so much to read. There are around a thousand letters and I really used the letters. That was the core of the book in some ways, because that is coward writing to the moment and not performing to an audience, just writing himself for his friends. And A Thousand Letters is actually quite good going. My previous subject left over twice that. And had I written a book on George Bernard Shaw, it would have been 10 times that. In some ways, there isn't as much as you might like. And in others, there's far too much. But the short answer to your question is you sit at a desk or in a chair and you read and read and read. Well, and clearly your ability to take notes on all of that and organize your notes on all of that is remarkable. Well, that's interesting. That is to do with being strict and not using everything and being brave enough to move very quickly through some parts of his life. Because although the book is quite long by some standards, it's 500 pages. I mean, given everything you're saying Coward wrote and given everything we know he did, I actually think it's quite pity. And there's an awful lot left out in some ways. As there had to be, or it would have been a thousand pages. Yeah, exactly. In some ways, writing a biography is the art of omission as well as inclusion. Mm -hmm. In terms of that inclusion, I was very taken and very appreciative of some of the shows that you highlighted that in other biographies we haven't had the opportunity to hear that much about, especially the reviews. Yeah, I'm pleased that you're pleased about the reviews. And by that, we mean R-E-V-U-E-S rather than the write-ups in the papers. Because the more I found out about them, these amazing evenings that are made up of monologues, short ballets, short comic sketches, chorus dances, numbers, the whole thing, a sort of variety show, really. They are impossible to revive and they are impossible to convey. They are by their nature ephemeral. You know, there was a review of 1924. There was a review of 1925. They were a sort of summation of each year and they could never be revived again. But it was in those, these gossamer transient things, that Coward was really at his most radical, at his most modern, where he became an antenna for his age. So I had to try this impossible task of recreating them. Impossible for me, the biographer, trying to put together what they were made up of and impossible for the reader because they've got nothing nothing but my words. There's no footage, there's no recording really, apart from some of the songs. And it's interesting for Coward as a songwriter too, because we know the songs, we know still songs such as Dance Little Lady or Mad Dogs and Englishmen. But what is interesting is to think that they didn't exist in a vacuum. They were part of staged sketches in evenings of entertainment. And that's important when it comes to understanding Coward as a songwriter too. So the reviews were fascinating to me, a very interesting exercise. 
exercise. Those reviews are time machine dreams for me. Yeah, exactly. To be able to go back and experience what they were like, the topicality of them. Oh, they are coward the modernist, almost more than the plays. I mean, one of the reviews early in the decade of the 1920s had a number dreamed up and envisaged by coward called the automobile age, where the members of the chorus had sort of car props, motor car props made of cardboard, you know, wearing driving goggles and so on, and filled the stage with a vision that to us now looks impossibly dated because cars have moved on so much, but which to its first audiences was an exhilarating and terrifying vision of a new world. It would be like going to a show now and seeing a number called the Twitter age or the iPhone age for the first time before everybody even had an iPhone. You know, it's a vision of the future. It's a prophecy. Seeing that number 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly so. And that is where Coward is a prophet, as I say, an antenna for his age, where he almost creates his age as well as reflects it. And that happens in the reviews, not the musicals, not the operettas, not the plays. And that's why the reviews to me are so interesting. And he was as famous in the moment for those reviews as he was for any of the plays. Oh, yes. And that is intriguing in itself, isn't it? To think that if you had asked at the end of the 1920s or even in the early 1930s why you liked Noel Coward, why he was famous, what you had heard of, you wouldn't know his early comedy Hay Fever, which is now a hardy perennial in the West End and occasionally on Broadway. Because you, you know, unless you saw its first performance, you wouldn't have necessarily seen any revival. Private Lives, the great comedy you might have seen, but you might have gone along with the general critical view that it wasn't, you know, a particularly significant or lasting play. What you were most likely to have seen was either his operetta Bittersweet, which was 1929, or most likely one of the reviews. And the one called This Year of Grace, which is 1928, was the one where the critics just went crazy and exhausted every superlative in their vocabulary because that seemed to reinvent the review as a form which showed off coward in a multiplicity of talent that had not been seen before or since because these reviews, unlike reviews for which, say, a figure such as Cole Porter had contributed material, were written exclusively by Coward. Sometimes he performed in them. He wrote the lyrics and the music for the songs. He wrote the dialogue for the comic sketches. He even conducted the orchestra on some performances. I mean, they were showcases for his array of talent. And that astonished, quite rightly, their first audiences. Many of these reviews were produced on Broadway as well as in London. So he's having an almost equal impact to a certain extent in the United States, or at least New York, as he was in London. Yes. And it's interesting, with some exception, because not everything he did, even in the review format, was a success. But it's interesting that it was the reviews and the music that traveled across the ocean and spoke to the very different audiences on Broadway and in the West End. Whereas not all the plays did. There was a certain... I might call it European wit that came from French farce and French light comedy and that maybe spoke to the British character in all its hedonism and puritanism because the decade was a wonderful sort of contradiction of those two things. And that didn't catch American audiences in quite the same way. And you have to remind yourself in the 1920s that while in London, Coward's party-going set of the bright young things are partying the night away in the nightclubs, in America, 
yes, you do have the Jazz Age, but you also have Prohibition. And you have first nights where Coward is resorting to spending $5,000 just to get a bit of illegal drink, you know, to serve to his adoring audiences. They're two very different worlds. And somehow the music of the reviews and the visual spectacle of them, which was considerable for some of them, that is what travels and speaks to audiences of any kind. Well, we'll get more into all of that as we go along. But I want to go back to one thing you said just a moment ago about how you like using the letters because that's where Coward is speaking and not performing. But then you also, and even judging from the title of the book, you talk about how it's such a challenge to capture and convey Coward as a person because in some ways he's always performing. Yes. And of course, to contradict myself, even the letter paper is an empty stage on which he can strut his stuff and entertain his friends. And yeah, Coward is in his essence a performer. It might be said he does not quite know who he is until there is an audience there. And that is a wonderful rock on which to flounder as a biographer, because you would think that really the biographer's task is to show you the man behind that. I mean, to use the metaphor of my title, Masquerade, and this image of the mask wearing, because I think of Card as someone who did wear an array of masks and took on their shape in some way, that the biographer's job would be to get beneath the mask, to show us the innermost soul of Noel Coward. But of course, you very quickly realise writing about Noel Coward that that is a pointless task. And I don't mean by that that he's simply hollow, but that something more profound is going on, that he, in an age where everybody is suddenly reading Freud and being told that they have an inner buried depth and an authentic truth within them, Coward is saying that the mask and the performance and the dazzling surface of theatre, which is all pretense and all fakery, that all of that, nevertheless, is where real profundity and truth can be found. And he's a contradiction because he is at his most profound when he is at his most flippant he only ever says anything deep when he's swimming about in the shallows. I mean, I've said rather too neatly before that he's not about hidden depths, he's about hidden surfaces. But I think that is true. And if you work out that it's best, really, to work out what masks coward wore and what truths they had to impart seen in different lights, that is much more virtuosic and revealing than trying to get it off his face. Because what do you see then? The truth? Another mask? Absolutely nothing at all? He asks all these questions in what he writes, and that's why I find him actually so fascinating and revealing. Again, you make an incredible case for that, and I found it very revealing to see him through this approach that you've taken. And part of that approach is your unique format for the book. I think you call it a nine-play structure for telling his story. Yes. How did you arrive at that, and what was the thinking that led you there? I arrived at that about a third of the way through the book in a black depression on a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> thinking I would never, ever, ever work out the way in. Because what you really have to do and what I had not been doing is the subject if you listen hard enough, will tell you how to write about him. This point about Coward being always performing, I needed some way to convey that without simply writing a rather dull paragraph saying Coward was always performing and leaving it there because that wouldn't have been enough. I mean, this was a man, I should say, who in his living room, in his flat in Pimlico in London, had a theatre built in. You know, he had a stage at one side of his living space. So even in a domestic space, I wanted to convey the way his life was a 
play in which he was both leading actor and in some ways stage manager. There were two things. The first was that in 1936, he wrote a sequence of nine short one-act plays that he performed with Gertrude Lawrence as three sequences. So you could see all nine over three nights. It's called Tonight at 8.30. And one of those short plays is the short play that he thickened out into the film Brief Encounter. And I thought suddenly, yes, a biography as nine short plays each one of which would be in some genre or form that Coward tried his hand at. The review, the screenplay, the play with music, the literary comedy, all of that, just to give a sense of the array of things that he could do. But how to do that? So each one is only at moments top and tailed with sections written in dialogue, with song lyrics included. Sometimes the whole book concludes with 20 pages or so narrating Coward's death and his sort of afterlife that is completely done as a play. It is done as dialogue. It is in play script form. But I didn't want to make anything up. The rule was everything had to be said and on the record and scholarly and cited. It took weeks of sitting there, finding a line from over there, finding a line from over there, Coward's diaries, Coward's letters, Coward's plays, Coward's poetry, and fashioning it into a sort of verbatim play that would convey the fact that you didn't need this interception of a biographer you could just let Coward do it on his own terms, the star of his own show. And it might not work, but it was an attempt that I stand by to convey quite how much Coward's life was theatre. And that what he is trying to say is that life is theatre and theatre is life. It worked for me. Good. Hooray. I have got over the and reviews in this country that didn't think it worked. But I'll admit that I had some initial trepidation. Is this going to be too clever for its own good? Or do we need this level of pretense? Yeah. But then you pulled it off. Well, if Coward is about layerings of pretense, and he may even be about being too clever for his own good, then as I say, it's in the spirit of him. I mean, I wouldn't dream of doing something like that, even for Tennessee Williams or Edward Albee. Somehow he demanded it. The sun is shining where clouds have been Maybe it's something to do with spring I feel no older than 17 Maybe it's something to do with spring Or something I can't express A kind of lute in the air Her lyrical loveliness seems, seems everywhere. everywhere That sheep's behaviour is just obscene Maybe it's something to do with Some crazy something to do with Maybe it's something to do with Spring, spring, ring-a-ding Don't go away. Oliver and I will be back with more conversation right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factor's menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. 
so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I can remember, I can remember, the months of November and December were filled for me with peculiar joys so different from those of other boys. For other boys would be counting the days till end of term and holiday times. But I was acting in Christmas plays while they were taken to pantomimes. I never cared who scored the goal or which side won the silver cup. I never learned to bat or bowl, but I heard the curtain going up. Let's talk about each of these plays, or chapters as we might call them in a more traditional version of this. The first one is called The Rainbow, an Edwardian comedy in six scenes. And obviously this is about Coward's childhood. And it's so interesting to think that he starts in the Victorian era. Yes, it's almost ludicrously neat the way Coward, by an, a hair's breadth, straddles two centuries. It's very different. My first subject did not. They're only six years apart, but there is something about a life contained within a century, however man-made these filing systems are, and a life that is more torn between two eras. And Coward was born in the last weeks of 1899. He spent 18 months as a Victorian baby, and that is somehow important for someone who then went on to become a great 20th century figure who sung the 20th century blues to use that term from one of his own songs. It gives him a head start on others of his generation. It means that when the 20s begin, he's already got a distance and a vantage point and he can see from a greater height and he can see further. And he is not only inside his own time, but he's outside it too, commenting on it. It's a sort of magic trick. He always manages to be in two places at once, sort of creating his age from the inside, but then taking a step back and seeing from a greater vantage point its dangers and its impermanence. But he was an Edwardian child actor. He was shaped by the Edwardian theatre, not by Gilbert and Sullivan so much, but by the craze for what are called Edwardian musical comedies, which are now unrevivable in their sort of 
of light-hearted, cleverly constructed, entirely vacuous, frothy good nature. And that is interesting in itself, that the Edwardian theatre was so seismic for him. From the age of 11, encouraged by a sort of amorous, romantic, borderline erotic relationship with his very intense and ambitious and highly strung mother, Violet, who adores him and he her, he is pushed into working as a child actor in the Edwardian theatre from the age of about 10 or 11, meaning, incidentally, that he then turns his back on any form of formal education or schooling. So this great brain is almost entirely autodidactically educated from his teenage years or even earlier. And of course, it's worth saying that this great construction of the character of Noel Coward, who is so sophisticated, so urbane, so, for want of a better word, posh, smart, upper crust, clipped British accent, vowels, you name it, was born in a semi-detached, perfectly ordinary terraced house in the outskirts of Surrey, near London, West London, and had a sort of impecunious, ragged upbringing and was not at all born into the world that he then went on to chronicle. And he needed to earn money. And he did so in plays such as Where the Rainbow Ends, which was an Edwardian play for children, and most of all, Peter Pan, where he was one of the lost boys. And that's a very interesting and resonant play for a man who was in some ways always arrested in boyhood. And that goes on really until the outbreak of the First World War and indeed through the war as well. So he's a relatively successful child actor who's supporting his family to a certain extent. Yes, his father sold pianos for a living. And by the time Coward was in the West End in reasonably large parts, he was certainly earning more than his father. Successful, yes. A star, no. There was a group of child actors. And among them was Gertrude Lawrence, you know, his great co-star in adult life. But he was not like, for example, a young actor called Philip Tong, who was the lead child actor. He was a sort of stalwart supporting player. But he was not a genius. He was not a dazzling talent. And people would then look back and say, my God, the fact that that grew up to become one of the most sensational figures in 20th century theatre, and they would be surprised by that. But, you know, he, he got through. And he was heavily immersed in this world of London theatre and show business. Yes, and learning how it works and learning comic technique from the best, such as an actor called Charles Hawtrey, who is not the actor in the Carry On films. He's a Victorian actor-manager who had created roles for Oscar Wilde and took a shine to Little Noel and taught him how the theatre worked, although it was a form of theatre that Coward would then become determined to modernise. Just to be sure everyone understands, this is Coward as a child working in first-class and sometimes second-class theatre, but with some of the best talents of the era. He comes across them, exactly so. We're not talking about leading classical actors necessarily, but in his metier of light comedy and musical theatre, he is meeting the best, yeah. And one of his fellow child actors becomes a lifelong friend, and that's Esme Wynne. Yes, it's funny, people tend to assume that the great woman in his life, especially early on, even from early on, was Gertrude Lawrence, because the two of them were so associated. But it was actually a child actor called Esme Wynne, as you say, from whom he became pretty quickly inseparable. And once the war had started, they were bonded by touring a pretty crummy Victorian comedy called Charlie's Aunt around the guest houses and provincial theatres of the country in harsh and frugal conditions. But it is their sort of hot-blooded, intense, fractious relationship 
from which you might argue all of the warring couples in his mature plays, such as Private Lives, actually stem. But they had a wonderful time together, even if eventually in adulthood the friendship cooled. And of course, because Coward was gay, the relationship has all the intimacy that is formed by the safety of its not ever progressing into romance. You know, that can actually make a male-female bond more intimate, I think, and did with Coward, certainly, because it's safely fraternal. As they grew older, of course, they did grow apart, partly because Esme married, partly because Esme eventually converted to Christian science, which was something with which Coward had absolutely no truck at all. It became far more fractious. She thought that he was surface and flippant and not engaging properly with the real philosophical, political issues of the day. He found her, by contrast, sort of too worthy, too serious. And when they did reunite in adulthood, it wasn't entirely plain sailing. And yet, of course, the bonds had been forged at that important time of the war and of childhood and were never entirely severed. And there's some very sweet, argumentative, but loving correspondence that they wrote to one another in later life that I put right at the end of the book, because it's one of the few relationships that lasts right through. It's the sort of thread through Coward's life, and it's an important friendship. And Esme has an important influence on his writing as well, because they start writing together on many projects. Yes, Esme pretty quickly becomes frustrated with the intellectual limitations of speaking somebody else's words and moving where a director tells you to go, and gave up acting by the age of 17, 18, because she wanted to write. And she did go on to write novels and so on. But she tried her hand at playwriting and songwriting lyrics, she did. And Coward sort of in a spirit of one-upmanship began to do it too. And they would spend their adolescent summers filling notebooks with short stories and collaborations and plays that they wrote together, or he would set her lyrics to music and so on. So she becomes not a muse, but a spur. You then bring us to World War I, and like every one of his generation, the war has a tremendous impact on Coward's life. And this is coupled with, at the same time, his emerging sexuality. Yes. The first thing that happens is that at the age of about 14, Coward begins, one can call it, a relationship with a much, much older man who was gay uh, and about 36, an artist called Philip Stretfield. And we do not know whether the relationship was sexual. He was, as an artist, part of a group of painters who liked to paint adolescent children, mainly boys, on the rocks of Cornwall with no clothes on. And this could be an evidence of paedophilia and a relationship with Coward that was sexual, or it could be an evidence of that Ed- Edwardian taste for childhood innocence that did not not actually wish to disrupt uh, the adolescent nude with the grown-up world of the bodily, the sexual, the pubescent. And we do not know. But either way, it is an intense friendship that lifts Coward into adulthood and bohemianism, probably before he was old enough, precocious as he was. And pretty soon into the war, that older artist is called up and he is in the trenches, not in Europe, but in England, on the defensive trenches built on the Essex coast. And he catches trench fever and he dies, which given the intensity of the relationship, must have, and biographers use that phrase must have too often when they should say may have, but I think must have is safe enough here, must have wounded Coward to the core at a very young age in a very difficult time where Coward is also struggling with tuberculosis and has spent time in a sanatorium. What Coward actually 
actually thought of this relationship, of course, he never wrote down because it would have been unspeakable, literally. There is supposition here. Not long after Philip Streckfield's death, another child actor whom Esme Wynne is having a relationship with and who Coward becomes fraternally very close to is called up and catches some disease in the training camp, uh, meningitis, I think, and dies very quickly. So within a very short space of time, the two most important men in Coward's world have died. Coward is always as old as the century, and most in his generation just escaped being called up for active service in the First World War. He did not because he turned 18 at the very end of 1917, which meant that the telegram came through the letterbox and he was sent to an army training camp. And it's interesting because we don't associate Noel Coward with the First World War. And in my head, I don't associate him with the great poets of the First World War like Wilfred Owen. But he went through the same battalion as Wilfred Owen. He went to the same training camp that Owen trained in. And it is no guarantee, given his age, that he would have escaped being sent to the front. Many 18-year-olds were sent to the front and killed, even in the last weeks of the war, coming up to the armistice in November 1918. And what stopped Coward from doing that is that he had a complete nervous breakdown. The regime was arduous. He spent a lot of time going on 20-mile route marches in the freezing winter, where a lot of recruits would die of heart attacks before they even made it to the front. And he lay in barracks, pulling string around his hands until the blood ran down his arms. And then he fell on a route march and he was taken to a hospital. And he spent months in the hospital. We've only just been able to work this out because of the release of his military papers. And he was discharged as physically and mentally unfit late in the summer of 1918. And this, of course, leaves scars of every kind, psychological, mental, emotional, physical. And it means that he goes into the 20s and most importantly into the Second World War with the sheer guilt of not having contributed, as so many did. But the war is a decisive thing in his life. I don't think enough has been made of this in writing about Coward, because it means that at the age of 18, all that trauma that I'm describing has happened to him, and he is spat out into the post-war world with this vacuum, this hole blown into the very heart of life. And nothing now can ever be serious enough to be taken seriously. And everything is far too slaughterous and frightening to be greeted with anything other than flippancy and laughter. And he has to find something to fill that hole. And it could be success, and it could be fame, and it could be money, and it could eventually be patriotism. But it forms him, the war, in a decisive way. And as you just alluded to later in life, this guilt he has about the war will have a big impact on him. And yet, from our viewpoint today, we wonder what is he feeling guilty about getting sick and not being able to fight in the war? It doesn't seem like he evaded the war. No, I mean, Esme Wynne, to go back to her, had her suspicions about whether this breakdown was entirely genuine and whether psychosomatic or staged. He had been declared mentally unfit by many doctors, and it is hard to imagine him surviving either the trenches in Flanders, but even the military regimes such was his physical and mental wiring. Yes, one has to think, I suppose, of the ideas of masculinity at the time, of the number of male colleagues who had served in the war, of that line, you know, England expects that every man will do his duty. And deflecting accusations of being a shirker, a coward, a pansy, whatever it might be, is surely part of the brittle armour that he wears as a protection and as a defence in the interwar years. 
And I think his determination in the Second World War to contribute what he had not been able to contribute in the first is all the more fervid because of residual shame, guilt about that breakdown. I think he went into the Second World War with an absolute determination to contribute something, not as a physical fighter or soldier, but as a playwright and as a brain and, as he hoped, as a naval officer, though that didn't come off very well, as a spy, you name it. And that all of that came, yes, from a desire to be knighted by Churchill, yes, from a desire to fight against the Nazis, but also from a desire to contribute something to the second war that he hadn't been able to contribute to the first because of the breakdown. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Oliver Sodden and I return with part two of our conversation inspired by his new book, Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. Look at us three representatives, we of a nation renowned for virility. We formed a cult of purility, just for fun. You may deplore the effects of war that are causing the world to decay a bit. We found our place and will play a bit in the sun. Though Waterloo was won upon the playing fields of Eton, the next war will be photographed and lost by Cecil Beaton. Bright young people ready to do it dare. We casually strive to keep London alive from Chelsea to Bloomsbury Square. We give lovely parties that last through the night. I dress as a woman and scream with delight. We wake up at lunchtime and find we're still tight. And, and what, what could be duller than that? Bright young people don't think our lives are not full. No, I make little hats from Victorian mats. Yes, and I work with tinfoil and wool. It's divine. (laughs) Our critics are often excessively rude. To one of my portraits, they always allude. It's me worked in beads upside down (laughs) in the nude. And And what what could be duller than than that? Psychology experts we often perplex. Yes, and doctors have warned us we'll end up as wrecks. But they get a degree if they find out our sex. And And what could could be duller than that? Rich girl, you're a bewitched girl, better beware. Laughing at danger, virtue a stranger, better take care. The life you lead sets all your nerves a jangle. Your love affairs are in a hopeless tangle. Though you're a child here, your life's a wild typhoon. In lives of leisure, the craze for pleasure steadily grows. But what comes after, nobody knows. You're weaving love into a mad jazz pattern, ruled by Pantaloon. Poor little rich girl, still drop a stitch too soon. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. A room with a view. And you. 
And no one to worry us No one to hurry us through This dream we found We'll gaze at the sky And try to guess what it's all about Then we will figure out why The world is round It's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 